Lord, we do agree with those prayers and do desire that you do work through that angel tree ministry and that you would in fact give Connie calmness and confidence that you're going to work and you're going to use whatever comes out of her mouth. In fact, use her preparation. Mm-hmm. In fact, give her even thoughts that she didn't even prepare for that are from you and give her the uh, encouragement that she needs to stand up and be confident in sharing your gospel that you use it. We know there's power in your gospel to bring people into a saving relationship, and we would pray for conversions, that to be people that would, in fact, trust in you as a result of hearing that message. And we desire this morning, as we look into your word and understand its significance in terms of us, that we may appropriate what you have provided and the promises that you have given in every circumstance, but particularly those that uh, we find difficult in our experience. So we commit our time this morning, desiring that you would have your way amongst us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I mentioned the last time that two of the most significant promises of all of Scripture are contained in the passage that we're looking at. We looked at the first one, the unbelievable concept that in our Christian walk, remember this is in the context of sanctification, God conforming us to his image. This is what the Christian life is all about. In that context, we have the promise or the teaching in the passage that we looked at last time, 26 and 27. Amazing to think that God himself is not only praying for us, but there's inter-Trinitarian communication concerning us. In fact, the passage says we don't even know how to pray. That, in fact, the prayers that we offer are oftentimes misguided, misinformed, too few, not as powerful as we might think. And the concept that God himself, the Holy Spirit, in verse 26 and 27, and then later on, we find out that Christ himself prays on our behalf. The Holy Spirit, internally, as he indwells us, that's the thrust of Romans 8, is praying for us. Jesus Christ, in fact it says, seated at the right hand of the Father, is also praying for us. And we have in the passage we looked at, God the Father understanding or knowing, in fact we have a hard time conceiving, of this inter-Trinitarian communication. We've talked a little bit about that. But in that, God is involved in our Christian walk, which is an amazing thought. What more do you need? I mean, what more could we even conceive of? Well, we have another promise in uh, verse 28, and we won't get beyond that verse this morning. I think it is equally as powerful, equally as significant, and equally as amazing And there's a lot in there that I think supports the idea that I'd like to uh, go off and take a look at some related issues with the words that are contained in verse 28. This is written, obviously, to a live, a real audience, real people that lived in the first century. Some of us visited recently the city of Rome. We saw this site were impressed with the Temple of Jupiter, was there in the time of uh, Paul, 
and the first century church. So this is something they were familiar with that they saw. One that came a little bit later than the writing, but was probably under construction, the Temple of Vespasian, who I have there for a date, 79. So this is towards the end of the first century. So these are real things, real people that Paul writes, but because it's inspired, we could uh, live in the city of Rome as, as well today, and it would be just as inspired as the original audience, and we could even live in the edge of the earth, Albuquerque, and it is equally inspired. So that's why it's important to look at these texts. We're in the section on sanctification and the particular section dealing with the power that God has provided. Part of that involves the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit and the fact that the Spirit is praying for us. First 11 verses deal with the power of the sinful flesh. There's power available that we may overcome what chapter 7 introduces us to and makes clear we have the inability to live the Christian life in our own efforts, our own obedience to the law or any commandments. Secondly, we have a family relationship. We are sons, so we're treated as family in the family of God, 12 through 17. And we saw the last several weeks, beginning in verse 18 through 30, One of the main instruments that God uses in our sanctification is suffering. So suffering and sanctification. Now, it's not at the forefront, but it is somewhat behind the scenes. And as he's discussing this, he introduces us to these amazing concepts in order to give us confidence that he is, in fact, using suffering to conform us to his image. So I see it running from eight, verse 18 all the way through verse 30. And uh, he starts off with a future hope. First 25 verses, we've completed that. Future hope where the entire creation is longing for the solution and the end and the glory associated with that at the end when suffering will be totally removed. So he's giving us these broad statements that include the entire universe, not just you and I as little tiny specks in the overall spectrum. And then 28 through 30, he's going to give us a sovereign plan. Well, first of all, present support of the Holy Spirit, that indwelling presence that brings indwelling prayer, then a sovereign plan, 28 through 30. We are part of the plan This passage doesn't emphasize it, but others do, that God initiated in eternity past that has to do with how we are experiencing things today. In other words, what is going on in your life today, God knew about it before he even created the universe. And he's working those things. This is what the passage teaches us, the amazing idea that he's working all of these circumstances for our good. Can you imagine that? So no matter how severe, no matter how drastic, no no matter how long-term, and I'm thinking of people like Johnny Erickson, who spend a lifetime disabled in a wheelchair. None of us have anything even close to that. No matter what, 
God is using all of the experiences, every incident. In fact, I make point every electron that he works for our ultimate good. Now, we see some of that in the worldwide ministry of a Johnny Erickson, but very similarly, God works in us as well. So we begin with verse 28. I kind of introduced it last time. We have a promise of this plan, and it's laid out more as a promise. And I've been reviewing some of the major principles here. Verse 21, suffering is God's main tool for sanctification, and he's given us a biblical perspective on the whole area of suffering. We get bound up in the details and the pain and the agony, and we get clouded in our thinking, and all we can think about is, when is this going to end? How am I going to get out of it? And in our culture, what pill do I take to deaden the pain? So a biblical perspective is God is using it, and we need to focus on what he's doing. And then uh, number 22 on the principles here, glorification is the end product of sanctification. And that theme runs throughout here as well. So beginning in verse 28, and we know, I kind of introduced this last time, the word here is oida, knowing. There's two Greek words, one Not in every usage, but there seems to be a tendency in a lot of usages. Ginosko is probably the more common word where we learn by experience. The idea of learning by experience and maybe even sometimes by observation or experiences of others, we can learn things. But some things are intuitive. In fact, everything is intuitive to God because he's omniscient. But for us, some things are, we might describe it as common sense or things that don't need to be emphasized because we know them. The word that you would use for those kinds of things is oida. But I think in this context, because this is, you don't learn this by experience. What he's going to talk about here, what he's going to explain, he is going to explain that God works all things for our good. And we'll expand upon that. That's not immediately evident. In fact, we don't experience, we don't know that by experience. We know that, I think, by revelation. So knowledge by revelation, not experience in this context. God is revealing it. And that's been the case. In fact, he's used oida before. In fact, he's used both of them. He's used ginosko and he's used oida all the way beginning in chapter 6. In fact, in chapter 6, that's one of the emphasis there. And the interesting thing that I've been stressing in this whole section on sanctification that deals with the Christian walk, what might you expect the emphasis to be? Lots of instruction. Do this. Do that. This is what you need to obey. Obey this. These are the things to do. That's what you might expect on a section on sanctification. But instead, what do we have? Do you not know? And he lays out. That's how he begins in chapter 6. And then he says, knowing this. And he lays out biblical truths. Some of them are not so evident. Some of them we need to think about and appropriate. And, in fact, in all of chapters 6 through 8, we have only four exhortations four commands, and they're all clustered together at the end of chapter 6. 
or somewhat to the middle of chapter 6. And here we have, again, another emphasis on knowing certain things. In other words, the heart of sanctification is grasping what God is doing through it, what is true about the experience where it begins, the union with Jesus Christ, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, the idea that justification brings not only total forgiveness, but declares us righteous, we're viewed differently from God's perspective. All of the principles that we've been looking at throughout chapter 6, 7, and 8. So in chapter 8, he begins with the idea of knowing something, and now he's going to reveal what we should know. And apparently, this is pretty common to teach the body of Christ in the first century. He says, we know. This is something that we we know, but we know it by revelation. So it's knowledge by revelation, not experiential, because we don't we don't sense this, we don't experience it. We we can experience it once we appropriate it and trust. I don't know how you're gonna use this, but I trust that you're gonna use this illness, this tragedy, this hardship, whatever it may be, that I'm going through now. You're going to use it ultimately for my good and even possibly temporally for my good. And there's lots of ways that God does that. So we know that God causes all things. Now, I don't remember. I think it was Maddie last week that asked, what is the word there for causes? Well, that word is part of the translators trying to make sense of the, the Greek text, so I thought I'd lay it out. This is all for Maddie, but she's not here this morning, so reprimand her next time you see it. Hmm. All right, we use it. Oh, you can use it too. Okay. Here's the whole verse, and here it is. I put it out in the Greek text, and I'll point it out. Some of you may not care, but hopefully it'll help, help to understand and put it together, because there's a couple of problems in the text. There's a, first of all, there's a textual problem, and what we mean by a textual problem We get the New Testament by comparing all of the available manuscripts that we know of. And this is how the King James, all of the translations, King James Version is dependent on a body. They call it the majority text. A body of all of these manuscripts, some of them older than others, some of them of higher quality than others, some of them more widely distributed than others in terms of their family. And there's a science called textual criticism. That science attempts to bring together all of these manuscripts and come up with different levels of confidence that this is what was original. Now, you might say, well, doesn't that introduce all kinds of errors? Well, textual criticism, in fact, the secular world puts together all of the classics. We have no originals of any of the classics, classical Greek writings, the philosophers, Plato, Aristotle, etc., all those writers. In the case of them, I don't know why I'm going off on this tangent. I've explained this before, but just to explain a little bit of the textual problem here, the classics, like some of the writings of Aristotle, let's say, they are dependent on like five copies that have survived thousands of years. And every department of classics today, this is typical of the reconstruction of all of those ancient documents. 
four or five, sometimes just two or three, but not much more than five, six manuscripts that they reconstruct. And you have a whole department of classics in virtually every major university. In fact, you can tell us a little bit more. You're taking classical Greek, right? (laughs) But I'm saying this to give you confidence because when it comes to the New Testament, we have over 6,000 manuscripts. And from that, we have more than what we have in the New Testament that would be the original writings. And it's a matter of choosing, is this probably more likely what Paul wrote, or is this more likely? Nothing has been lost. In fact, we have an abundance of additional data that has been set aside because the scholars believe that it's not so. The point I'm making here, we have far more by magnitudes confidence that what we have is what Paul wrote. But in some cases, we have a little controversy. The King James and some versions will translate it, and we know that all things, all things being the subject, work together for good. Okay? There's a couple of manuscripts that uh, includes God as the subject, and it's in the text. Now, I don't think there's enough manuscript evidence to support that, But still, the all things, which is this word here, panta, that word could be accusative or it also could be nominative. Now, Jim's got more Greek than everybody else here. So panta, that could be the subject. And the King James Version takes it that way. Now, another view, and it makes God the subject and takes panta as the object of the verb. Does that make any sense? Have I lost everybody this morning? Yes, I've lost everybody. So, tell us the the potential translation of Panta. You've missed that. Well, this is all things. Panta. All things. It's actually, literally, all. The meaning of the word is all. And it can have a modifier, but here, without a modifier, it's better to translate it all things. So, so this would be something where... The, the subject is assumed to be God? Well, in Greek, every verb has part of the verb, depending on how it's, in this case, what the endings and the changes within it, it has the subject in it. Okay, so. And the subject would be third person singular. In other words, he. So if you were reading this in Greek and you were just reading words. You could say... He is in there, works together, or works all things together. All things would be the, the object. God works all things. Does that make sense? And I think that's the best way of taking the passage. So this is the accusative. It can be accusative, which is the object. And the, the God, or he, would be within the verb, And the close antecedent is God here. Now, this God is the second God. Uh, Good to those who love God. This one here. And that's in the accusative as well, right? Jim? Tormthon. Did I totally lose everybody so far? I'll try harder. (laughs) The point being is, in the text, and we know that 
God causes this is to make it smooth and easier to read. I take it that we still have God as the subject, but it's not the one in some of the manuscripts. There's not an extra theos in there. There's only one, and the one is associated with those who love God as the object of love. Okay, so it's, it's, it's going to say, because he's talking about those who love God, it's assumed that God is working these things, so it's kind of, a, as he's writing it out, it's an assumption that mm-hmm. all things work together for good to those who love God, but God causes these things yes. to be doing. Yes, and that's how the translators take so it. So it's kind of turned around. Yeah, and in Greek you have different order. In fact, this order puts the stress. We know there's oida in its, uh, what do you call it? In verb form. Yeah, well, it's a verb. Here's the and, de, and, and remember in Greek the order is different from English. English we usually have a subject, verb, object. Uh, you can have things in, out of order. We know that, hati, those who love God, this is all of, this is one word, those who, lo- or those who love, and then we have God. So the emphasis here is on those who love God. It's put before everything else. And now he's going to tell us about it. Jim? So uh, I'm going to understand that in the, in the main verb, there's sunergay. Sunergay. Okay, so it's, I understand that he is built into the verb in singular. Yes. And so there's there's no other singular antecedent, really. Ex- except that. For those, they ought to be. Yeah. Posting this plural on first line. Yes. So. It can't be those. Yeah, it can't be those. It can be either, there's only two options. It can be either panta, which can be nominative, or can be the sub, it can be either. It can be, and this is what the King James opts for. Alright? It can be either all things work together, or he. Yeah, it has to be he. So if you were going to read that, you would read something, we know those who love God, all things work together, and then I, because this is all great to me. Uh, work together for good. Ace Agatha. And then we have a second qualifier, to those according to the purpose, to those called according to the purpose, his purpose. In your transliteration. No, but, but no, the he is in here. Okay, so now that we've confused everybody, <laughs> or put everybody to sleep. No, appreciate this a lot. Do you? Yeah. Okay. Not at least one fan. One fan. <laughs> Say that last, the last phrase right there, down at the bottom. The uh, to good, and then we have a comma there, which I think is helpful. To the called, and we're gonna, I'm gonna expand on that. To the called, according to kata, according to his purpose. Which word in all of that is is good? The good part. I got so, Too good. Because I think the whole verse hinges on that. That that is one of my life verses. But for good, because when you look at all of the difficulties, and the trials, mm-hmm. and the challenges, and everything else, it's not my interpretation. Right. Yeah. Especially. I don't, to have especially, I, I don't have God's understanding of, of good or how He's going to bring good out of something. Yeah. And sometimes we're in such dark places. Well, some things. Just don't see it. One of the things I'm going to stress here: some things are not good. Okay, you're going to get there. All right. 
Okay, but God works them, and that's what this word means here. He transforms. He transforms evil. Yeah. I'll jump ahead and give you the prime example. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ was utter, probably the most evil thing that ever took place in the universe. God transformed that and works it to be the most important thing in bringing people into a saving relationship. There's other examples as well. I'll give you some other examples. Everybody got that? Just one thing. That that back there, that blue Greek word. That's the main word, yeah. Yeah, what is that word? Synergy. Synergy, working together. If you want to visualize it, and this is for Bill, since I, he's the fan here. Rest of you are asleep, right? <laughs> no, not asleep. Just try synergy. What is synergy? Or that's where we get the word synergy. The working together of things for positive things. Yeah, and they can be negative things that can work. If you think of it, well, let's think of positive first. Oxygen, oxygen by itself is a very good thing, and you combine a little bit of hydrogen as well which is also a good thing. Separately, they do different things, but you bring them together and what? You have life, <laughs> water, hydrogen and oxygen working together in a chemical bond gives us water. What about salt? Very useful, very good. What is it made up of? Sodium and chlorine. Drink a little bit of chlorine, if you will, and what happens? <laughs> may kill you. Even sodium is not that good, but you combine them together and they work together for good. Salt is good. That's synergy. That's the word here. See the physical possibility of two, in some cases, two detrimental elements chemically combined, they produce good. Well, God does this in the spiritual and in fact in the broader realm. God does this. He works things, he can take an evil thing, and he can work it such that it works good. And that's only he can transform it in that way. Mary that's Lee. what Joseph told his brothers when he looked them straight in the eye and that's said, one of what the you did was evil. evil. And, and, he, and God worked it God for good. good. Right. Yep, that's one of the other examples that I'm going to use. Okay, so we know that God... Causes all things, it's God that's working, not the all things working together within themselves, but God causes all things to work together for good. Working together, there's soon ergeo, all circumstances, God working them together, putting them together. This circumstance, this circumstance, this situation, bringing them all together such that not only ultimately is he going to bring it all to good, first in the millennial kingdom, and then he's going to work it all good in eternity, but even in our individual lives, because this is what he's dealing with. He's dealing with the believer here, working these things within us, no matter how painful, how dreadful, how tragic, he is working these things. Now he's going to qualify who are the recipients of this good to those who love God who are the ones that love God I think if you do a word study on those that love God or the phrase and this concept he's talking about who 
I think he's dealing with all believers. I think he's dealing with all believers. So any believer, anyone that is related to the Lord Jesus Christ, now some new believers, well, maybe believers that have gotten a little complacent, they're not conscious, they're not maybe living in the way they, they do. They've kind of wandered like the uh, Laodiceans in the book of Revelation. They've lost their first love. I think that's possible. But I think it's a general term that describes the believer. So, but it wouldn't be, it would not even have to be one who has yet committed his life or her life to Christ, but one who sees that God could be good and God uses even those evil things to draw them closer to himself. So there simply is a a bit of a heart response in that perhaps it's Mm -hmm. not a a sold-out believer because he he has said that he even uses the the disciplines, Mm -hmm. the discipline in our lives to prove and correct, turn us to his person. Yeah, but even those that may be living in the flesh, we have a second qualification. Here. Right. And that catches all the others. In other words, all of them. I think he's making it crystal clear this pertains to believers. The unbeliever doesn't have this promise. In fact, the unbeliever not only suffers consequences of sin in this life that do damage with no transforming of good, but what happens to the unbeliever ultimately? Is it, are there any good qualities of the lake of fire? Anything positive there? No. To those who are called according to his purpose. Let's look at that. If you do a word study, and I did a word study, a hundred and, what is it? Let me see, 148 occurrences in the New Testament, and then there's bunches of them in the Old Testament as well. You're going to find that the word it has different forms. Usually a word will have a noun form and it'll have a verb form. And here we have two of them. The terms that we have here in verse 28 is the noun form, kletos. In other words, those who are called. In other words, those who have this experience, I guess you could say, or this quality of being called. Kletos is what we have in verse 28. Now, we're going to see in verse 30, we have the verb form, kaleo. And the word kaleo is used 140 40 times. Kletos is only used 10 times in the New Testament. Kaleo, and like virtually, well, I would say every theological term in the Bible has a what? Common, everyday usage. The theological terms that we have in the Bible, the writers give them theological significance. And that's true of all of them. I've given you several examples. Uh, Some of them we've seen, justification even, salvation, redemption. They all have come from the everyday world. Now we have theological significance, spiritual significance, so also this word kaleo. So, in its everyday usage, in fact, this one has a lot of everyday usages or common usages. Something like to call. What do you call your daughter? You give her a name. You identify them. You could use the word kaleo. Identify by name. And here's an example. We won't look it up, but Jesus, or they, they called, they were to call him Jesus. Matthew one twenty one. 
That was his name. That was to identify him. Now, names have more significance than what we have in our culture, but it identifies him with this name, with all these characteristics that go with the name as well. You named your children, and somebody says, what did you call them? You give them what you call them. You identify them with a name. It's also used to call somebody or to summons them or to invite them. And it's used in a lot of parables. They were invited to a banquet. They were invited to a certain occasion. And in John 2, 2, Jesus was invited to that wedding feast. Just has the idea of to invite somebody. In fact, very, very common. Very common in that sense. Let me give you kind of a, a feel for it. Yeah, yeah, combine the two together. But there's lots of examples. First of all, in fact, you can, if you do a word study, a large number of them are used in this sense. And I've got a whole list. Uh, Simon, who was called the zealot. The Zacchaeus one that you're talking about. Well, wait a minute. Uh, Luke 19.2, and there was a man called by the name Zacchaeus. Identified. There you go, Connie. Judas Iscariot. And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot. Peter, you shall be called Cephas, shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Saul, they laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man called Saul, or named Saul. That's how it's translated. So there's lots of usages in that way. Mountains, cities are named, lived in a city called Nazareth, Matthew 2.23, uh, Revelation 16.16, 16, the place which in Hebrew is called or named Har Magedan. So it's used very commonly for places as well without a name. And then to invite or to summons. Matthew 22, the parable, 3 through 4. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been called or invited to the wedding feast. It's used twice. He sent out those slaves to kaleo, those who had been called kaleo. So very commonly. And it's used to summon to a place, very similar to that. That's Acts, to summon to a particular place. But now the writers, both Old Testament and New Testament, take this same word, give it theological significance. And in this theological significance, it has a wide range even within it. And you could divide it into several categories. But I'm just kind of given it a broad description, I guess you'd say, divine calling. It has the sense of God inviting. In other words, in some cases, inviting some for salvation. What is it? Matthew 22. Many are called, invited, but few are chosen. In other words, the calling and the invitation can be very broad. I think it can be very uh, specific as well and used in a very particular and specific sense. And it can include the calling, in fact, most commonly, in fact, maybe in every occurrence when it's used in this way, called to something, called to something particular, including salvation, but not limited to that. In fact, most of the verses talk about a person being called to other things that are associated with those that have salvation. 
That makes sense? So the issue is how is it used? And we ought to look up, look up Ephesians 4 4. Let's look up those and, and then we'll go from there. We're about done here for today. 2 Thessalonians 2.14. Somebody get that one as well. Who's got the first one? Connie's got Ephesians. Dwayne's got 2 Thessalonians. You got it, Connie? Ephesians 4.4. 4. There is one body and one spirit. Okay, that's used twice there. In the hope of your calling. It looks to both a past calling, which you were called, which probably includes at least salvation, but other things as well. But it also has a forward-looking to it. There's a future aspect to this broad calling of a believer, and it's in the context of believers, and it's written to believers. See that there, Connie? Read it again. There's one body and one spirit, just as called. You were called, past tense. Okay, and that calling includes the invitation of the gospel message, perhaps, but it also includes a calling that includes salvation that you responded to, and it has a future hope. Dwayne, read uh, 2 Thessalonians 2.14. To which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of Christ. Okay, I give you that one because it's specific to the gospel. And every time that you share the gospel and are able to get through the whole thing, you're making an invitation. And it's the means that God uses to bring people into a saving relationship. The call. Now, there's many other verses. I'll give you more next week that talk about calling to particular things. I think what is at least part of this verse, I think it's broad. I think it includes lots of things in verse 28. But I think it begins with that initial calling and reception of the Lord Jesus Christ. So calling, the word here is kletos. Some describe it as an effectual call. In other words, a call that results in regeneration. A result results in salvation. Not just the invitation. Not just the broad invitation some reject. But it's ending, and the reason I say that, the context, we'll develop that when we get to 29 and 23, and I think we have a chain of things that take place in those that God calls effectually. You you can't break the chain. In other words, he starts with uh, foreknowledge, and then he goes predestination, and then he has in the middle call, and then justification and glorification. I think it's a package deal. We'll Talk more about that when we get to verse 29. And it's according to his purpose. We will have completed the verse, but we'll expand it some more next week. So this idea of a purpose, in other words, there's a plan. And I'm going to expand that and give you lots of verses in terms of an overall plan of God. We'll have to wait till next week. We can rejoice in two of the greatest promises in all of Scripture concept that God himself is involved intimately in our prayers, Holy Spirit praying inwardly, Jesus Christ from the right hand of the Father, and this promise that we just looked at, that God is transforming, not only working, transforming all circumstances in the life of the believer, working them for good. Tremendous concepts. Yeah, that's, that is earth-shaking.
believe it and live it out, believing that this is not good in a relative sense. It may even be evil. It, it can be evil in a relative sense. Yeah. But once, I mean, that's pure alchemy. Right. <laughs> right. And that's the perspective that we need to remind ourselves when we are in pain. Very good. Who wants to close for us? Terry. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the hope that you give us. Thank you for your calling. Lord, just we pray that we can live out through your spirit to glorify you. Amen.